Well, please have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 7, at what for many of you will be very familiar words indeed, and uh, as they were for me in considering them over these last few weeks. We're looking this morning from verse 7 to verse 12, and I trust that we'll find with, with God's great help uh, that these words, though familiar, uh, can uh, ring something new in our hearts and minds this morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is exhorting all of us who know him, uh, all who've called upon his name, to have a certain kind of character, uh, to have a life which lives out certain sorts of graces which are unique to those who are Christian people, not something which we can simply stride out and do on our own. Jesus knows that In these well-known verses, we discover he knows only too well our our frame and he urges us to lay hold of that help and strength and wisdom that all of us need. He knows and understands that we need that. He knows and understands that on our own we lack it. He urges us to cry out to our Heavenly Father. And he does that in these verses because if there is anyone who knows and understands God the Father, it is God the Son. He and the Father are one, he said. To see Jesus is to see the Father, he said some of the wonderful truths about the triune God which Jesus reveals in John's Gospel. Jesus, as he calls us to ask and seek and knock, he does that as one who knows perfectly the attitude of the Father towards his children when they call out to him. And he wants to assure you this morning that if you will heed his plea to turn to the Lord in this way, you have nothing to fear and you will never be disappointed. Because Jesus, more than anyone else, knows the Father. He knows what you can expect when you bow the knee before him. Three things this morning I want us to see, and the first is this. The first is the exhortation to take to heart. The exhortation to take to heart, verses 7 and 8. Ask, says Jesus, and it will be given you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Ask. Asking for help requires humility and consciousness of your need. It requires you to confess your need. That's why men find it so hard to wind down the window and ask for directions. It just goes against them. 
The Greek word that's used here implies one who is inferior, petitioning one who is superior. And so this asking includes an admission of your own inadequacy. It includes an admission that you lack the resources that you need. It assumes a confession that unless one who is greater than you will in some way move or act, then you are completely hopeless and helpless. So ask. And what does it tell us in terms of what Jesus expects your heavenly Father to do if you're a Christian? Jesus exhorts you to ask because he knows that this Father, his Father and yours, is ready to listen and to answer. That's a theme that you'll often find repeated in the Psalms as David and others are simply bowled over by certain truths. Yes, God. God, the one who merely spoke and from nothing created everything, he is interested in me. He listens to me. He knows me. And he takes notice of me when I cry out to him. And he's ready to move on my behalf, this God in heaven. And, and in the Psalms, what are they constantly doing? Look at all the times in the past when God has moved on behalf of his people. Remember all the times that God heard and answered our prayer. Will he not do it again? If you know the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, there's a scene. Caractacus Potts wants Lord Scrumptious to take this new candy that he's developed and made. But Lord Scrumptious is a bit of a bombastic character. Truly Scrumptious, the daughter, urges him on. She knows her father. Go on, she says. Ask him. Pursue him. It'll be okay. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Go on, he says. Take it to the father. It'll be good. How much more, Jesus, with us. Your heavenly father, he will not disappoint you. Ask Take it to him. Ask. But it's not just about asking. You must also seek. You must seek. Do you remember what we read in James in chapter 4? It says this, the opening couple of verses in James 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, 
that you may spend it on your pleasures. So Jesus says it's not just about asking, there must also be a seeking. A seeking. What are the things which are right and good to ask for? What is it that God desires that I as his child will come before him and ask of him? How can I know those things? Well, there needs to be this seeking that goes alongside the asking. And much of that seeking is done by employing those means of grace that God has given you. So, there is a seeking. So, you're, you're someone who spends time in God's Word. You're, you're someone who attends the meetings of the church like this, so that you may learn Someone who spends time talking maybe to older Christians or people who've been a Christian for longer than you have and you can seek wise help and counsel and guidance. This seeking involves a self-examination so that you can humbly acknowledge your sins and your weaknesses and your temptations and be seeking to have all of these things corrected in you before him. An earnest seeking after God and his will and his ways for you. Because this asking is not simply about getting whatever you want. As we'll see, it's about receiving from God those things which are right and good in his eyes for you. And so it's asking, but it also is seeking. And so you do that which you can. You use that which God has given you that you might seek him, to know him, to know his will. And there's so much in God's word that will help you in that regard. So alongside your asking, there is seeking. And let's face it, sometimes... This requires persistence. And so there is knocking, and you keep on knocking until you get an answer. Do you recall what we saw regarding fasting a few weeks back? Fasting, in general, occurred in the Bible in what kinds of circumstances? Well, there was an earnest asking and seeking after God. Not just, God, what are you going to do about it? But, God, what would you have me do? What, we, what would you have us do? Would you not guide us and direct us in order that we might go the way that you would have us go? And they kept on knocking till they got the answer. Sometimes it was a, a pleading for forgiveness of sins because their sins were so great. And they kept on with God until they received that assurance that indeed their sins were forgiven. Will you not forgive us our sins? Will you not help us to cleanse our ways? Sometimes it was just perplexity at the circumstances that they were in. How on earth is this going to work itself out? in any kind of way that you, God, are going to be glorified in this situation. 
show us the way that you would have us go. Sometimes it was simply saying, Lord, we don't know what to do. And they ask, and they, and they, they were seeking, and they were knocking. We don't know what to do. The only thing left for us is to fix our hearts, our minds, our eyes upon you. And they gave themselves to it. And they were doing more than just asking. They were seeking. They were knocking on the door of heaven until the Lord answered them. Ask and seek and knock. Jesus is encouraging us to pray in this way, to take these things to the Lord in this way, because he knows that the Heavenly Father, his answer will be, now you're talking to me. Now you're praying like my own son used to pray to me when he was on this earth, when he was walking this world. If there was ever one who knew what it was to ask and to seek and to knock, it was Christ with his heavenly Father in the place of prayer. Do you think Jesus would mess you around as a Christian on these topics? You pray like this to the Lord, he says, he will answer you. He will hear you. He will respond. These aren't the overhyped claims of some snake oil salesman. This is your Lord and Saviour giving you these promises that if you will ask of God and seek him out and if you will knock, he will respond, he will answer. And these things come from one who knows you and loves you and who knows and loves the Father. This comes from the Saviour who himself lived in perfect communion with God the Father. And he's encouraging each one of us to do the same as we seek after the Lord. It's great exhortation that comes from the Saviour to all who follow him for your good. And along with this exhortation, then secondly, we have the promise to believe. The promise to believe, verses 9 through to 11. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What a glorious promise that is. There's no tomfoolery going on with God. Well, he's not going to play cruel mind games with you. There'll be no spiritual sleight of hand taking place. There's nothing ever deceitful going on with God as he deals with his people. A loving father, if he knew his child was really hungry and that child asked for bread, would he really be so cruel as to pretend that he had given bread to the child when what looked like bread actually turned out to be a stone? Would that father 
give that child something that he couldn't even eat when that child needs bread? Or would he unwrap what he expected to be a fish and discover that his father had given him a snake? Even in your sinful state, says Jesus, you know what it is to give that which is good to your children when they need something good. How much more would your heavenly Father not treat you like that? Now again, we need to remember, of course, that this isn't a promise that you can ask God for whatever you want and he'll give it to you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is that if you come before your heavenly Father with a genuine request, you will always receive from him something which he knows will be good for you. What he gives will always be good. So this requires you to come to your heavenly Father in faith and in trust. What he gives will be good. Now, you know how to give your children that which is good for them. Does that sometimes mean that there are certain things that you have to withhold from them? Well, yes, of course, it does sometimes. But you do know how to give them that which is good. How much more with your Heavenly Father in his dealings with you? And if you've been through, if you've been thorough in your seeking, well, you'll have learned from the Bible that even sufferings, even afflictions, can turn out to be for your benefit because God actually meant them for good. And at the end, there will be good in store for you. And you may not always see the good in it immediately, but you will, and it will be. Jesus is encouraging us to see that prayer is not to be approached as if God is just some spiritual vending machine in the sky and you just put something in there and exactly what you want just drops out the bottom. It's not how it works. It's not how Jesus is presenting it here. And of course, prayer isn't either going through certain rites and rituals so that in some way God can be cajoled into doing something for your benefit. He's a father. You're to come to him as his child. Now, Jesus, of course, has spent his whole life in open and perfect communion with his heavenly Father. By that I mean his earthly life. There are, of course, aspects of Christ's relationship with his Father which are completely unique to them as those two persons of the Godhead who are from everlasting to everlasting, eternally God. And yet there is an aspect of their relationship that Jesus wants you to know and enjoy and to benefit from. In that prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17, 
Jesus speaks there of his relationship with his heavenly Father. And he prays for all of his disciples that they may be caught up in that intimate love that exists between the Son and his Father. That we might have a share in that love that they have for one another. That that love that they enjoy might be a reality for you. That something of that love that, that Jesus knew from his heavenly Father, that you will know it too. And that love that Jesus had for his Father, that that will grow in each one of us as well. To truly approach him as Father. To ask of him. To seek him out in his word. To spend time with him, to commune with him. That you may receive from him as from a loving father. And everything that will come from that will always be right and just and good. This is the place where you will find the peace and the rest and the comfort for your soul that you so need. Regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what's going on in your life, this is where you will find that which you're, you're looking for, that this world cannot find. By heeding this exhortation of the Lord Jesus and knowing the reality of this promise that he gives you. You turn your heart and your mind heavenwards to your Father, whose love for you is without limit and without measure, whose resources are without limit and without measure. And you trust him completely. So with all of your fears, with all of your worries, in all of your pain, ask, seek, knock. All of your future plans, all of your hopes and dreams, ask, seek, knock. All of your talents and abilities, or maybe your sense of hopelessness and uselessness, ask, seek, knock. Ask of him. Seek him. Keep on knocking. Christ promises the Father will hear you. He will answer you. He will give you that which is right and good for you. It's not the promise of earthly riches. It's not the promise of earthly success. It's the promise of a father who will love you more dearly than any child could ever hope to be loved and cared for this side of heaven. You have the promise of Christ that such asking and seeking and knocking will never be in vain. Never. What a promise that is. It's not a promise to be used in a slapdash way. It's not a promise that you try to use for your own vain ends. It's not a promise that you use to try and get on in the world, 
kind of use it as something that will uh, give you the edge over everybody else just for all the kinds of things that they're after. It's something that is done by the one who in and through the Lord Jesus Christ has just humbled themselves before the Lord of glory. Someone who's just acknowledged and confessed all of their sinfulness and acknowledged their complete need of that which only God can supply. To come with empty hands, nothing to bring, and to seek him. To have done it with an open Bible where God has revealed himself and made himself known where the will of God is clearly declared, all the things that God loves, you now love. The things that God despises, you now despise. You would never even dream of asking of the Lord something which clearly in his word he could never give to one of his children because you haven't just asked, you've sought. And then, as God by his Spirit and through his word is working in you and shaping you and growing you, then it is you can heed this great exhortation that Christ gives you and claim that promise that he lays before you. the grace and goodness of God will come to you. And thirdly, in verse 12, Jesus says, pass it on. Live it out. Doing to others as you would have them do to you. Living out the love and the law of God. But this can only be done by those who have lives that have been transformed by the grace and power of God. To, to do what Jesus is asking us to do here in verse 12, whatever men want to do to you, do also to them. This can only be done by those whose lives have been shaped and transformed by the power of God. The Bible says, do not murder. The opposite of murdering someone is not merely not to murder them. The opposite of murdering someone is actually to do that which will positively help to sustain them, that which will positively assist them. In his grace, even when you were a sinner, God did not merely withhold his judgment from you and not kill you, he positively blessed you with grace and good things. The Bible says that you're not to covet what other people have. And the opposite of coveting is not merely not to covet. The opposite of coveting is actually to be unbelievably generous towards others with that which I have. The Bible says we're not to steal 
And the opposite of stealing is not merely keeping your hands in your pockets so you don't. It's to work hard for your livelihood so that you can provide for your family and even for many more who are in genuine need. The Bible says don't commit adultery. The opposite of committing adultery is to be the most loving and faithful husband and wife that your spouse could ever have hoped to have. Doing others as you would have them do to you is actually to live out the law of God. Because actually, you don't want people to simply not murder you. You want them to be really kind and good to you. You, you don't want others, you don't want to know that others are actually not coveting. You, you want, actually want them to be generous and gracious towards you. You don't, want, you don't want a wife or a husband who is just this side of committing adultery. You want a husband or a wife who is a million miles away from it and is just the most loving, gracious partner that you could ever have hoped to have. Doing to others as God, as God, as you would have them do to you is actually living out the reality of the law of God. This is not if you want them to do this for you, then you first do this for them. This is not if you show them this kindness, they will owe you, they will be in debt to you, and one day it will come back to you. That's not what this is. Because this is to live in obedience to God's word. This is the law and the prophets. This is what it means to live out the law of God in the world that Jesus is talking about here. Zacchaeus is a great example of this. Here's a man, he's tricked people, he's overcharged people, he's, a, he's applied extortionate late payment charges his whole working life and he's made an absolute fortune out of it. But one day, salvation came to his house in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The proof? Everything changed in that man. He became the polar opposite to what he had been. He didn't just, he didn't just stop cheating people. He didn't just stop overcharging people. He paid them back four times over. He just went completely from that extreme to that extreme, living out the law of God. If Zacchaeus had been one of the people that he cheated, what would he have wanted them to do to him? Well, that's what he did for them. Because this is the proof that God is at work in the man. What is he expecting back from them in return for all of this generosity he's showering upon them now? Nothing. He wants nothing from them. This is the law of God working itself out in this saved man. He's doing what he does because this is what a man in his position who's been born again will do. Totally unmerited and undeserved grace and mercy has flooded his soul 
And now through him and in him, this same grace and mercy is flooding out to others. When a Christian lady called Dorcas died, dozens of women in her town are besides themselves with grief. Why? Well, they've never known a woman so loving and kind and generous as Dorcas. Their testimony of her life is everything that she did for them, all that she gave them. Now, it may be at first glance, verse 12 seems to be out of place after we've read verses 7 to 11. It may not seem to have any obvious connection at first, but it does. The word therefore that Jesus uses at the beginning of verse 12 tells us that this is a logical conclusion and outworking of everything that's gone before. Jesus has been talking about a father who gives and provides so graciously and so abundantly. Now, says Jesus, if you truly belong to him, you will do likewise. If you are on the receiving end of all of this grace and goodness and mercy from God, people need to see that in you. It will work itself out within you. God the Father, from his infinite resources, gives to you. You, from what he gives you, must now give to others. This is the law of God working itself out. How can you or I be a Christian who knows and experiences the truths of verse 7 to 11, but then be utterly selfish and inward-looking with everything that God gives us in answer to our request? How can those two things exist side by side? Jesus is pointing us back to chapter 5. Don't get the idea that chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, is just some scheme for you to get all you ever wanted. No, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, is actually how you can be the kind of person that Jesus is talking about in chapter 5. Maybe try this. Maybe try rereading chapter 5. And as it's searching requirements stretch you and convict you as they did when I read them through again and as you wonder to yourself can I really live like this could I ever live like this well you pause and you hear the words of the saviour say these three words ask seek knock as you read chapter 5 and you wonder could this ever be me be assured of Christ's promise it will be given you if you ask you will find this if you truly seek this will be opened to you if you keep on knocking and there in that place you and I will have discovered what it really means to pray as Christ would have us pray to be a child of God sitting at the feet of your father asking seeking knocking 
and there is no better place.